Welcome to Voices, the EISA podcast, the space for cutting-edge research in the discipline of international relations and the audible companion to EISA, the European International Studies Association. This podcast sets the stage for deeper insights into award-winning papers, books and theses, as much as it provides a room for the critical engagement with key concepts in political and sociological thought. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. My name is Judith Koch. I'm a PhD student in international relations at the University of Sussex, and I'm the production manager of this podcast. Please welcome our today's host, Polly Pallister-Wilkins, political geographer and associate professor at the University of Amsterdam and board member of the EISA. Today we are going to talk about the EISA's new book series with Oxford University Press, Voices in International Relations. Not to be confused with this wonderful podcast from the EISA, also called Voices. And to talk about this today, we are joined by Debbie Lyle, a professor of international relations at Queen's University Belfast. Debbie's research engages with a number of contemporary debates in international relations, international political sociology, and beyond, most notably around issues of difference, mobility, security, travel, visuality, governmentality, biopolitics, materiality, technology, practice, and power. Her book, Holidays in the Danger Zone, Entanglements of War and Tourism, published by Minnesota University Press, won the International Political Sociology section at the ISA Book Award in 2018. Debbie has been a journal editor of International Political Sociology and is currently a member of the EISA Governing Board, where she is overseeing the publications portfolio. And this is the reason we are talking to Debbie today, as she is also the series editor, along with Tanya Alberts, Anna Leander and Laura Schoberg of the new EISA OUP book series, Voices in International Relations. EISA's new book series, published by Oxford University Press, furthers the development of research at the frontiers of international relations. It expands the remit of the field by including innovative scholarship that broadens debates about key issues in IR. But it is more interested in scholarship reproblematizing IR and its key issues of concern by approaching it from inside and outside the conventional core. I'm going to start with the first question. So, Debbie, can you tell us about the motivation behind setting up the Voices in International Relations book series? Thanks, Polly. Really good to be here. And thank you for inviting me to um, to say a few words about this new book series. Um to be fair, the book series, the idea for the book series started before I was on the EISA governing board. So I can't take any credit for that brilliant idea. Um, that was the previous governing board. But Anna Leander and Beata Jean did the early legwork on building up an idea for a book series. And in discussion with them and also the current editors, our sense, I think, was that there's been such a 
explosion in IR as a field, both in terms of, I mean, everything in terms of theoretical uh, positions, in terms of methodologies, in terms of the type of work we do, the alliances we have with other disciplines. I mean, and but that's been going on for such a long time, right? You could say probably about 30 years. And there, there's while there are definitely book series in which that work is being published, of course, I guess we sort of felt like, and especially in the space that the EISA as an association has created as well, where a lot of those voices were being, we were hearing them at conferences, you know, we were having discussions, but there didn't seem to be a place in terms of long form books, right? So journal journal articles, sure, there's journals and we have the EJR, of course, and you'll be talking to Oliver about that. But so I think the idea was just to try to create a space where some of these new debates and voices and the new directions that IR is already traveling in, that we could that we could try to find a space for that work. So that that's sort of my understanding. And it, you know, in a way you can see this, if you think about it historically, there, there's a way in which the the discipline moved into Christine Sylvester's great idea about the the kind of camps, the different camps that I are sort of settled into. Um and that's been like that for a while, but part of part of what Voices is trying to do is to generate new conversations across, between, underneath, over all of those to sort of shake that terrain up a little bit. I think. I mean, that's my understanding of the genealogy of the of the book series. But I do think that, in my experience, I'm not sure if it's yours as well, but being a participant at the the conferences, the EISA conferences hearing all new voices because the EISA is actually quite young, right? It's only about 10 years old. So so it's captured that, that sort of energy around what's happening in IR uh, across Europe, but also beyond that. So, I mean, it is the European ISA, but, but, it's, but it's more than that. And I think there's something distinct about the energy behind those debates that have been happening at the EISA. And that's exactly what we're trying to capture in, in voices. So you've, you've already mentioned these camps, right? The idea of sort of forging new connections right between these camps and so in the in the introduction to the book series you you talk about sort of wanting a pluralism that allows a diversity of approaches and scholars to be represented and an ethos of communication that forges these new connections between the camps that currently constitute IR can you unpack this a little bit more for our listeners like what does this really mean I, I suppose also what does this look like in in practice yeah, I mean, let me be clear. When I say pluralism, it's that one of those words that kind of it seems empty, doesn't it? Because everybody wants to use it so everybody feels included, but of course that's depoliticizing in its own way. So I don't mean that in the like liberal, like oh, everybody has the voice, and you know, I don't mean that. I don't mean that at all. And the editors don't mean that. But I got. I mean, one way to think about this is sort of you know, historically, and I'm old enough that I, that I can remember the time where in the discipline, uh, in those early days where the discipline was starting to branch out, it was like the big mainstream, right? The kind of the realists, the liberals, et cetera, like the big mainstream of the big dudes. And then there was this kind of weird collection of everybody else. Do you know what I mean? So it was like everybody else. And you couldn't have disagreements with each other because 
because the the bigger fight was there, right? So, and then that's obviously not the case now. And then that developed. And then, so once we moved on from that, we started to have, there were obvious, obvious tensions and disagreements and debates, but then we sort of like moved into these little patchwork camps for good reasons, because sometimes you need to have, you know, that sense of belonging and security in order to generate new research, et cetera. That's fine. But I think the time has come where, um, where, where we need to start having some different conversations, right? Um, and also some conversations that I don't know about you, but I sometimes get a little tired of these endless navel gazing exercises of like, where, what is IR today? Where, what does this mean to, you know what I mean? Like there, it's important to do some of that, but actually my other point would be like the questions at the moment are like, the stakes are really high. Yeah. The stakes are really high. So like those historical sociologies of your discipline are important. They are, they are, but like we, sometimes I feel like we get caught up in those. <laughs> it's a little bit solipsistic. So I just think it's about like reforging some connections and solidarities as we're all facing like the giant questions of the day. I mean, that's, that's the way I would put it. Um, I mean, in practice, that's really hard work, you know, because you end up having to have debates and conversations and, and generate questions sometimes with people you don't necessarily always agree with. Uh, it's that it's, it's those sorts of hard, hard conversations that you have to have, but I guess, yeah. So I just think in a historical setting, like we're no longer fighting a big mainstream, but we're also not no longer like totally dispersed into these like minute little camps. So like, it's kind of what's the new terrain. That's I think where, voices comes in. Like, this is what we're trying to capture. And we're also trying to generate debate within that terrain. That's great. So what sort of type of work are you looking for then? I think we're looking for work that's really ambitious. Uh, and I know that's like a buzzword of Silicon Valley tech bros. Um, everybody wants to be ambitious, but nobody knows what that means, right? So one of the ways I explain this often when I talk to, especially when I talk to uh, PhD students and early career researchers is like, this idea that that it's okay, that it is okay in some sense, but the idea that you just apply, for example, a theory that's already existing and you apply it to a new empirical terrain, I think the days of that kind of research are over. I have to say, I think it's over. And, and I love William Walters calls it applicationism, and I love that I, because that's exactly what it is. And I feel angry a lot because. There, so many academics tell their PhD students that that's, that's good enough. And it isn't actually, it isn't good enough because, you know, the field is such that you have to demonstrate your contribution to debates in a much bigger way than just that. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, I'm applying it to a new set of years or I'm applying this to a new country or whatever. It's, it's not good enough. So I mean, ambitious in the sense of what the contribution to the debates is and that, that contribution, you know, has to expand across conceptual and theoretical work. It has to expand across methodological questions and, of course, empirical work. Um, that's what, really what I'm looking for. Um, I guess, I, I mean, it's also about giving ourselves and giving each other permission to ask those big, ambitious questions. It, that's also what's happening. Because I don't think that we're going to be addressing the giant questions we need to address if we're just going to be uh, constraining ourselves or limiting ourselves to those small, small, small questions. Does that mean that you can't have work that's specific? No, 
That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that like the questions that one is asking have to be ambitious. Um, and I think, so to go back to what I was saying about camps, right? Like, I think again, it's about giving ourselves and each other permission to, to do work that draws from where it has to draw from. Now that means across the field of IR, but also means from other disciplines, right? Now, when I say that, what I don't want is that sort of dilettante move where you run into anthropology for 12 minutes and say like, oh, oh, look, they're talking about, you know, migration and me too. And then you'd cite Ticton and Didier Fessin and then, and then that's it. And then you go back and start doing something else. That's not what, certainly that's not what we mean by ambitious transdisciplinary work at all. So it's, it's not about, IR discovers things. Yeah, which IR is loves to do, doesn't it? It loves yep. to. I I mean, look, I I'm guilty of that. We're all guilty of it to some extent because the pressures of the the work mean that we don't have ten years to sit in a room and read books and smoke cigars and think about. Oh, now I'm going to be an anthropologist. You, we don't have that. I know that, but I just think that there's it it like it's hard work. You have to honor the other disciplines that you are exploring. You really do. Um, and then you have to generate conversations. I know, like, we often talk about, you know, in IR, what what, what can we learn from anthropology? Or so I'm, I'm using anthropology as an example, but it could be sociology, it could be law, it could be whatever. What do we learn from them? And what we don't often do is turn the question around and say, well, what do we have to say to them? What are they not asking that actually we're the experts on? Um, so it's always that two-way conversation. And sometimes I think we don't have the second one enough. We are always just saying, again, I'm guilty of this enough. Oh, IR sucks. You know, everyone in anthropology and sociology and law and literature, they're all so cool and sexy and smart. And like, we're terrible, right? I Like for sure have done that. But it's also about thinking about the questions that we have always been asking, but especially in the last 25, 30 years, like those that like finding the voice that we have about, about pushing those questions about the international, the transversal, the global into these big, big, big global challenges. That's us. Like we're the experts, you know? So we need to be saying more about ourselves or having a little bit more confidence about the debates that we're generating, as well as having those conversations across those disciplines. I don't know about you, but I see so much ambition from, you know, PhD students, early career researchers, right? I, I feel like sometimes, you know, I I don't like to think of myself as a conservative academic, but sometimes I feel like, my goodness, I'm playing it so safe, so conservative. And my PhD student just asking a question that I, I would have been too scared to ask as a PhD student, right? So I think this is great that this is potentially a space. I um, hope so. Yeah. You know, having said that, Right. I mean, the research is really daunting in and of itself. Right. But also publishing a book can seem like a really daunting prospect. Right. I mean, yes, people write long form theses. It's kind of like a book, but it isn't. Um, and, you know, it's it's a daunting prospect for anyone, but especially for first timers. So you have written wonderful books, award winning. Can you demystify the process of publishing for us the publishing process yeah I mean I can try I will say writing of anything right writing in general is bloody hard 
Yeah, it, it's just hard. And there's no shortcut. Like I this, how many times have we had? I know you have. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. You know, like that's kind of words, right? But writing, writing, like proper writing where you cultivate a voice and you find that voice and you make an argument. It's just hard. Like it's just hard. And even if you write seven, 10, 15 books, it's still hard. And there's something about the difficulty I'm not trying to be like that kind of emo teenage boy in their bedroom listening to the Smiths or whatever. I'm not meaning like, oh, I'm just, you know, wearing black. All the time. I don't mean it like that. I don't mean, and I don't mean it like a kind of, um, you know, a ritual hazing that you just have to go through it. It's just that the process of figuring out your own argument in your voice is hard work. And actually the only way that you get better at it doesn't mean it's, it's just differently hard. Yeah. So it just becomes harder in different ways. But the only way to do that is just to write more. It's just to keep writing. Like, I, I, I'm sorry. It's that's just it. So I want to, I'm always keen to say that. Um, and all, all these people that say, oh, I just, you know, I just sat down and it just came out of me. Like I was there and it was perfect. Right. It's also BS because what that doesn't take into account is all the work that's gone on before whatever that is. Now, everybody writes differently. Everybody thinks differently. Everybody plans differently. But I just want to really start by saying it's really bloody hard work. It's hard work. So don't, don't kind of, don't let that put you off, but then don't, don't think that you're going to sail through it. I always say to my PhD students at the very, very start, and it's like at the start of any book project, right? Like you're going to have a crisis and it's all going to fall apart. It's going to happen. Now, whether that happens now, like at the very start, it could happen at the very end. It could happen somewhere in the middle, but don't like, and that's normal. Everybody has that. So it's okay to fail. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's well, well, yes, but there are different stakes in failure, but, but it's also just like, that's, that's just the nature of the beast. So let's not lie about it. Let's, let's try to support each other when we're like doing that hard work of, of writing. I, I mean, in terms of books, um, I'll talk about the PhD stuff a bit later, just because that's a quite a specific thing, but, but for me, in terms of like what, when we're editors looking at proposals or when we're editors looking at books, um, it's really important to get the book proposal right. It's just like, it's really important to get the introduction to a book right or the introduction to a thesis right. It's really, really important because you have, you are going to be speaking to people and people are going to be reading it who are not necessarily experts in the field. And you have to be kind to them and you have to like bring them into the project in a way that, that helps them to understand it. In my view, not enough time is often spent on the proposal and the introduction, I would say. So that would be my first thing is like, don't toss that off. Don't make it, don't make the book proposal the last thing you do as a kind of like, I'm so exhausted anyway. I finished the book. Here's my proposal. I'm going to do this on a Monday night. Like, don't, please don't do that. Like, don't do that. Do you know, honor the work by, by, by giving it, airing it, like give, giving it the energy it needs to kind of, um, so that readers who maybe aren't familiar with the area will be able to understand it and become attached to it. Um, so I think that would be my, that put the time in for the proposal. And, and again, like abstracts, right? I'm sure you've had this where actually sometimes writing when it's going well and it's flowing is fine. But then when somebody says, write a 200 word abstract and you're there for three days, banging your head on the desk, like what? <laughs> because, because you're being forced to think of the whole thing as opposed to the step-by-step, -step, right? So 
proposals, book proposals are hard. Like they're hard. They're really hard to write. And I would say, I would absolutely encourage you to do, to get critical feedback from friends, from colleagues, absolutely get critical feedback from people you trust, from your critical friends. I would also say, let it breathe. And what I mean by that is like, absolutely get it to the best, like this is the greatest proposal that's ever been written and then put it in a drawer. Yeah. Just for even a little bit, even for like three days, just put it in a drawer and don't think about it because let it settle and then have some perspective when you go back to it, um, to do the revisions because revisions are crucial. So that's, so I would say put the time and energy into the proposal. Um, in terms of the voices series, um, the, the, we have a pretty clear, um, set of instructions on the website, on the ESA website about what the actual proposal includes, like title, there's an overview and contribution. You have to say how it fits with the series. What are its main competition? These are pretty standard things for book proposals, but I would say as well, um, it really focus on that overview and contribution. What is this book telling me and, and saying that I can't read anywhere else? That's literally what it is. What's original about this? Why should I read this? Why, what's so what? All those big questions, they have to be answered in that overview and contribution. And often people don't pay enough attention to that part of it, I would say. Um, in terms of like common mistakes, I mean, I think one of them I've talked about is you just don't put the time into the proposal. So please put the time into the proposal. Uh, another common one is uh, people don't read the brief, right? So the the voices in IR is an inviting, you know, to use the P word, the pluralist word. It is a pluralistic uh, approach, but, you know, it isn't for everyone. Let's be clear about that. And, and that's fine. Like there's lots of book series in IR and a lot of people don't do the research to work out like where, where is my book likely to fit? Uh, and that's really important. Like you have to say how your book fits in, into the kind of the goals that the series has for itself. Now, like you could do this podcast with a different series editor of a different, and they'll be telling you different things. Totally fine. But, but you have to speak to that. And a lot of people don't, again, put the time in um, to do that. I think, I guess the way I would put it is just, you, you want to be putting your best foot forward. Like you want to be, whatever you submit has to be in its best form. I'm not a fan of people who say, Oh, just chuck it in. Yeah. And I've had that advice from senior mentors. Oh, just chuck it in and see what happens, which is totally disrespectful to all the people that have to review it. And we know that that's extra time on people's jobs, right? Reviewing is free labor. And whether that's, at, you know, reviewing book proposals, reviewing, you know, peer review journal reviews, that's extra labor, right? That's extra service labor. Like if you're just chucking any old shit in, excuse my language, I was always going to swear on this, Polly, you know that. Uh, <laughs> but if if you're just chucking anything in, right? Like, how disrespectful is that to yourself and your work, but also to the people that have to read it? So, so please submit the best thing that you want to us to read. That's what I would say. I, and I say that with full understanding of all of the multiple pressures that especially PhD students and early career researchers are under. I absolutely acknowledge that. And, and the pipeline is terrible. The job market's terrible. You know, all of that, all of the terribleness, I fully acknowledge. But respect yourself and honor yourself and the work that you've done by submitting the best work that you can. Don't chuck any old crap in. So, I mean, you want, you want ambition, 
you want you know a, a, the proposal to be very clear to be strong to be upfront to kind of you know the why should we care element absolutely fundamental but do you think there could also be a risk of overstating right you don't do you know absolutely we've all encountered those the genius figure yeah they i think they arise in all fields uh, of the universe. Uh, but I would say if you did, if you were a statistical person and did an analysis, I think there'd be more of those in academia. For sure. I would have to say. Yeah. yeah. So the work um, has to be situated in the fit, right? You still have to, you know, situate why your oh, argument yeah. matters in relation to the existing yes. work. Well, absolutely. Like honor the people that came before you, right? You, like none of us are the first people to think of any of this, right? So don't have the hubris to think that you are. Now, does that mean that you're not contributing? No, of course you're contributing, but you need to spell out why. Like, so my friend Polly has said this about migration. My friend Heather had said this about, you know what I mean? Who are my allies? Who am I speaking to? How am I contributing to what those debates say? And, and part of how we learn to do that is to say, yeah, I agree with this part of it, but they've missed this whole other part. And that's my, that's me. I'm filling that part in, or, um, I disagree with that part of it because I think it ends up here and I want to show you how it, I, I want to take a different trajectory and there's all kinds of ways, but there's also a, a voice question, which is, I guess it's it, like what you've identified there is like, there's a risk on both sides. One of them is like, I don't need, I'm so, I'm such a genius that I do not have to even pay attention to the literature. Because I, because I'm a genius. So like, obviously everything that comes out of my mouth is golden and here it is. And there's no linking to the debates. That's the one end of it. And the other end of it, and we see this in, in early career scholars and PhD students, especially is like, they, they feel like they have to spend the entire piece of work paying homage to their forefathers who've gone before them. And I say forefathers deliberately because that's often what happens. And I'm like, no, like you got to you've got to find your own voice in there. So there's two, those, there are two risks. They're opposite risks, but yeah, we see both of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Once you've got this proposal, which manages to tread the delicate fine line between, you know, I am doing something that you should pay attention to, but I am not a lone genius. Um, how is the proposal considered? Like, Again, unpack that for us, because I think especially for a lot of early career folks, it's not clear, like, who reads the proposal? Right. You know, yeah. Is it sent out for external review? What is a ideal kind of timeline look like? Yeah, so th I, I, I can speak to that from th from this book series process. It might be different in others. So like that, but for, but for voices, there's a there, there's a series, there's series editors, there's four of us, there's myself. There's Anna Leander, there's Tanya Alberts, and Laura Schoberg. And we're the four series editors. So when a book proposal comes in and you submit it through the website, through the EISA website, it's pretty straightforward, all the instructions. Um, it comes to us and we read the material, the proposal. Uh, you have to submit a book. Everybody has to submit a book proposal. Everybody has to submit a very short CV. And then there's different ways you can submit either a chunk of what you've done, a couple of chapters, what you've done, a whole manuscript for certainly for PhDs and that are, that are being turned into book, we would have to see the whole manuscript. And also for edited volumes, we would have to see the whole manuscript, but other, some people will just choose to send 
um, chapters. So the four of us, so we read the material, we have a discussion about the material, and then we make a decision as the series editors as to whether we want to forward that to Oxford University Press. Now, that might involve us saying, for example, nope, this doesn't fit with this series, but here's another series that we actually think you'll probably have more success with. It might look like more like an R&R. We really like this, but at the moment in the proposal, you haven't articulated clearly for us what the central contribution is. Here's some suggestions. So we give feedback at that stage, or we might say, this is like, a, like astonishing and wonderful and fabulous, and it will forward it on to OUP. So what happens at that point is we forward the material to Oxford University Press, and at that point they take over and run a, a conventional peer review process. So what they will do is they will send that material out to two anonymous peer reviewers who will read the material and send back a referee report. That's that's the standard. And if you just submitted blind, not in a series to any publisher, that's what would happen. If they decide if they decide to send it out for review, it'll go to two anonymous or sometimes three, but often two peer reviews. Those peer review reports will come back. Oxford University Press will share those with the series editors, and we will have a large discussion, and then a decision will be made as to whether we take it forward into issuing a contract, whether we it goes out for back for R and R, or whether it doesn't make it through. So it's very much a collaboration between Oxford University Press and EISA, and that's deliberate from the start. So we want this, we want this to be, we we want a lot of um, agency in here shaping the books that are coming through this series. Great, great, but yeah. because OUP handles the kind of the peer review process, there's also right. a sort of firewall between. Yes. you as the series editors and that's right. and the reviewers, so that we could sort of build some kind of, I guess, academic legitimacy. Into, absolutely. Into oh, absolutely. Yeah, and we have nothing like that's not. We just like once we send it on, in the, at that stage, uh, they 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 handle all that as they should, right? And that's all done anonymously, etc. So we have no we have no, nothing to do with that. And it may be the case that like we we send something forward and then we may have like a disagreement with Oxford. And then so we're the you know, we'll have to have some conversations about what it is that we're doing. But yeah, so and then and then the, the conventional peer review will happen through them. Fantastic. And so then if, if people are successful and the proposal is accepted and yet they sign a contract, how, how do they move on from that? Like, what do they have to do after that? I guess, right. Finish writing the thing. So the decision, the decision for when a contract is issued is made by Oxford University Press because they're they're the ones publishing the book. Now that can happen at any stage. Uh, my this is my interpretation is it's more likely that's starting to happen after the book has been drafted in full. Occasionally they, I mean, they may they'll make an offer for, on the basis of a couple of chapters or whatever. That that's becoming less frequent, I would say just because of the nature of academic publishing, et cetera. But, but that, that decision is Oxford's decision and that will involve 99.9% um, .9 of the time that will involve a process of revision. So a contract may be awarded on the basis of the fact that you will do these, these set, this set of revisions, et cetera. Um, but again, yeah, that's handled by Oxford and then they, they will handle all the publishing end of it as it were. And do you, do you, I mean, obviously this is a, a work in progress. This is 
a, a new series and you've you've raised the issue of the the pipeline and the pressures that are on ECRs yeah. can you maybe sort of at least ballpark give us an approximation of how long do you ex- you know from submission of say a full manuscript you know through the review process to acceptance and contract signing to publication how long do you envision or hope approximately that that would take i mean given this is new i i don't have a concrete answer because we don't know yet because we haven't gone through it uh, a lot of that will have to do with with capacity at this first stage with the four of us now we're trying to do that you know as quickly as possible three to six weeks is our hope, but sometimes that, you know, life intervenes. Um, And then of course, once it goes to Oxford, that'll depend on capacity in terms of reviewing. And now that, that often you'll find delays with trying to find reviewers. Cause as we know, right, like this is free labor and it's a lot of work and they pay a little bit of money, I think, but not a lot, right. It's the service thing. So that can often be where the where the hiccup happens in the in the timeline because they can't find reviewers or once somebody agrees to review, they have a delay and then it comes back. So I'm afraid I don't have an answer for you, but we try to do our best to get it, to get it to Oxford if it's going to Oxford as much as we can. And also, but also, especially with with ECRs and PhDs, is to get is to get them feedback as quickly as possible, right? Um, that's always important to say you know, you need to do, for you to have the best chance of success going through this process, you need to do A, B, C, D, and E, right? Uh, and to get that to them as quickly as possible so that they can then do a little bit more work to to put it in its best shape. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, a lot of this also relies on on all of us as colleagues right. in the field to, to pick up our service that's right. Uh, <laughs> responsibilities and, and to please review so we can ensure that you know, these things get through the pipeline, that people get this feedback that, yes. you know, especially for ECRs, as you say, facing these yeah. incredibly difficult job market circumstances at the moment. Yeah. So yeah. Just a little, just a little uh, public service announcement. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when, when, when anybody asks you for do a review, please do a review. Yeah, please. You know, you yeah. know, people did reviews for you. Okay. So I'm going to kind of wrap up now, I think with asking you if you had, because again, turning up a PhD is not a book. A PhD no. is not a book. No. So do, and I mean, it can be quite daunting, I think, again, for sort of thinking about how to, how you do this, how you turn your PhD into a book. Do you have any special advice for how to do that? You know, you have had many excellent PhD students you were published yourself so how how does this work so I think what you've said is like the the golden nugget of information that the PhD is a genre and a book is a genre and they're not the same thing new they have similarities but they are not the same and it I think that is something that PhD students are not often, we don't teach them that. We don't explain that to them. So that that's a, a message we have to do better at, at, at getting out. The, the PhD is a, has to do much more of that paying homage to a set of literatures or debate to demonstrate to your examiners, I know this work. I've read this work and I understand it in my own way. Now, when you come to write a book, that has to be already assumed that you've done that. So 
we often say the biggest like structural difference is there's not going to be a literature review in a book. Who wants to read a literature review? I mean, nobody. Okay. So that's not going to be there. I know you're laughing because I know that you've read books that <laughs> spend a lot of time going over the literature. We have to be better than that. We have to be better than that. We have to be like participating in the literature and being confident about how we're contributing to it. That's what I'd say. But so on the EISA website, there is a section at the bottom, which is, which is specific advice for PhD students. So I would say, read that. The, the one structural issue is, is lit review. But for me, and I know this is sort of nebulous, but the really big difference is the question of voice. And, and a book has to have a distinct voice, making a distinct argument. And that's the biggest challenge for PhD students and early career researchers is being having the confidence to articulate that voice in an independent and critical way, but also being given permission by mentors, by figures in the field, that, that that's exactly what you have to do. And you often, I know you and I have had these conversations before when you're talking to PhD students and early career researchers where it, it it's really this question of confidence building, right? Like they're just like, I mean, I can't, I couldn't possibly say that. And you're like, yeah, yes, you can. Like, yes, as long as you do the work to support what you're saying and you and you articulate it and you justify what you're saying, you absolutely should be doing that. We want to hear the those independent voices. Like we want to hear what you have to say, right? This is the problem with a lit review, right? I, I, I have fights with my colleagues all the time where they say a, a PhD student starts and the first thing they should do is a lit review. Incorrect. Like incorrect. It's the least interesting and in the end, least important part of a PhD. It's the work that goes on behind the scenes. They have to do it. It's not that they don't have to do it, but like, but that's the least the least interesting and least vital part of an argument, right? It's like what I want to hear what you have to say. And then I want you to be justifying it and telling me why I should absolutely be reading this. And you're the person I should be reading on it. Uh, that same thing um, in that transformation into a book that has to be amplified. That voice has to be amplified and, and, and it has to be given room to breathe and it has to announce itself with confidence, I think. And that's really hard. Like it's really hard, especially given all the, all of the, you know, pressures that PhD students and ECRs are under, right? It's it like, you, cause you need time and space to do that. And that's the thing that no longer, we no longer have, not that we ever had it, but you know, in, in really clear ways, that's what PhD students and early career researchers don't have. So I think it's, I, I hope I can speak for my amazing and fabulous and glorious other series editors that like we are really committed to trying to help PhD students and ECRs find that voice um, in the small way that we can do that. All we should all be doing that. Mentors should do that. PhD supervisors, all of it. But but we want to be, be part of that whole uh, project to do that. Yeah, so it's a question of of mastering rather than being mastered, right? I used to, right. you know, and, yes. and yeah, and then talking. I mean, you you mentioned all the people that can help um, ECRs to do that. I also think PhD examiners can help to hundred percent to do that, right? When you're when you're doing an examination, you know, you've helpful advice, sort of post successful congratulations, you've passed. You know, that's also something that PhD examiners, I think, should be doing, right? How advice on, yeah, don't need so much of a discussion on methods, you know. Yeah. 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 I get, yeah, methods is the other boring 
I mean, I know you've examined a billion PhDs. I know you have to do it. But I think we should be, this is not so much about the book series, but this is more about PhD students but and PhD theses. We should be demanding more from our PhD students because they're more than capable of doing it, you know, of like really thinking creatively and critically about how they're doing the work that they're doing instead of going, you know, a semi-structured interview does that, you know, I mean, no, but we all know that, right. That's not interesting, creative, ambitious, or, nor is it going to answer like the question of catastrophic climate change, like, or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, it's really about that, that focusing on and developing uh, that singular voice that, that you have. It's, it's a lifelong work, right? I mean, you know, we keep doing this as we go along, but the earlier we can support PhD students and ECRs into finding that voice, like the better, the better the discipline will be, I think. 100% agree. Yeah, giving them the confidence to do that and not trying to turn them into little mini me's. Yeah, no, we don't want to do that. I will say, though, like, I, that's the specific set of advice, I would say, for PhDs and turning PhDs into books. But like, you know, this is not, this is a series for all of us. Like this is a series for, you know, when big hotshot professors submit stuff, we're not going to be, you know, oh, thank you so much, you know, straight through. Absolutely not. That's not what we're doing. Like, so it's, this is a peer review, uh, peer conversation that we're having, right. Which is about critical feedback, which makes the work better. That's what it's about. So part of the series editor's job is to do that work in advance of it going to OUP so that by the time it goes to OUP, it's in a really good position, right? That's what we're trying to do. That's the labor that we're putting into this because we want to see really, really, really good work go through this series. Fantastic. Do you have any final comments, things we should know, any any products and services you would like to plug? <laughs> You mean like my new podcast? No, I don't have a new podcast. Of course not. Um, no, I mean we're like I said, it's this, we're at the very start of this, right? So we it's we we're excited about whatever creature it's going to turn into, right? Um, but I I want to say just like as a I've been around this game for quite a while, um, and I really do appreciate uh, the energy that is around the European IS, the EISA. I really, I think it's become a very interesting and generative place. And I mean that both in the, in the big piece, the, the PET conference, but also in the EWIS workshops, but just in general, there's a kind of, uh, to, to use like the lingo that my teenagers use, like there's a vibe in the EISA that I really like. And that I really appreciate and I've benefited from and I hope I've contributed to, you know, and I've been going to the ISA for a long, long time. Um, and there's pockets there as well, but it's so big. It's a very different thing. But in the EISA, I've not seen it sort of bad behavior. I've seen generative, supportive behavior. I've seen robust debates, but you know what I mean? And I just think like I'm being a bit flaky, but I don't know what other way to put it is, is what I would love for this series to do is capture the energy that has that is behind the EISA uh, as a young kind of association that is bringing together like like super super interesting scholars from lots of different places and putting them together um, and and it, and it is really where the field is is developing I think I think that's a wonderful place to end on catching Perfect. the vibe the cool vibe <laughs> of the cool kids. 
Yeah. So cool kids, send your proposals to uh, to the Voices in IR book series. Absolutely. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us today. Truly. Thank, thank you, you, Polly. Thank you. It was great talking to you. You too. You too. Thank you for bringing your usual uh, wit and humor and, uh, and joie and de vivre. Words. We appreciate and it. I snuck one in, but only one, which only for one. me is like, for me is pretty special. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you for listening. Please find all information on today's interview guests and hosts in the show notes. Voices, the EISA podcast, is available on all established podcast platforms. If you liked it, subscribe now. Voices, the EISA podcast, feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible.